Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. chapter number one, the first five verses, amen, here this evening, Deuteronomy 1, first five verses this evening, woke up early this morning around 4.30 and things were going over in my mind for this lesson tonight, so I just got up in about an hour after I figured, well, instead of tossing and turning, thinking about it, I'll get up and do something about it, amen. So I worked a little bit at the house and got ready and then finally came over here to church and, and such. So I'm thankful for the Lord today. Deuteronomy 6, verse number 1. It's our springboard. Glad to see you that are here. Uh, I'd like to say my sister Paula's here for me, but she's not. She's here for our mother because mom's turning 71 today. And so today's her birthday. Hey Amen. Can we give the bishop's wife a hand clap tonight? Amen of appreciation. <clears throat> Amen. 71 years upon this earth. Amen. And the majority of those years have been dedicated to serving the Lord. Amen. We're grateful for that heritage tonight. Deuteronomy 6 and verse number 1. The Bible says, Now these are the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither that ye go to possess it. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee. Thou and thy son and thy son's son. All the days of thy life that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it. That it may be well with thee and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And our key verse is kind of verse number four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Shema. Brother Mason, can you one more time give me the Hebrew? Amen. Praise the Lord. Again, this is our series, God is One. Tonight, as a focus, I would like to talk about one God, many attributes. One God, many attributes. If you're here tonight, you weren't here for the first lesson, I recommend that whenever the podcast come out, hit that first lesson. Because this is one of these series that it's an impossibility for you to have the full understanding of what I'm talking about by just cherry-picking one service. You need the whole ball of wax. All right? And so uh, even if I'm saying something tonight and there's, like, questions still dangling in your minds concerning other things, give me a chance. I still got some more time ahead of me. All right? Amen. But uh, I think uh, tonight there'll be enough here. Uh, and my wife told me, she said, if you've been up since four, she says, you got enough material for an hour and a half to be teaching tonight. Well, that's, that's quite possible. That's quite possible. But I'll try not to make you drink out of a fire hose tonight, okay? And, uh, and if I don't get finished with this, it just doesn't happen. No big deal to me. There's always another Wednesday coming. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you this evening. I pray, O oh Lord, for a spirit of revelation and enlightenment, Lord Jesus. God, upon your people tonight. 
God, I pray, Lord, in your word, God, for the words that are in here, God, speak of you. They are words of eternal life. I pray, oh, Lord, God, that you would help us here this evening, God, and we will, Lord, give you the glory, God, for what you do and accomplish through your word, through your spoken word, God, as we speak it in the ears of these people. In the name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. The church say amen. Hallelujah. Not just, you may be seated, not just to throw you totally in the deep end of the pool. I'll try to do a quick review for you from last week. Last week we taught how the oneness of God is basically the basis for every other aspect of our Christian experience. The oneness of God is the very foundation and basis for our praise, our worship, our baptism, holiness, standards, whatever you want to throw into the pot, guarantee you that the oneness of God is the very focal point or the hub from which all those spokes come. We also taught how that the oneness of God was the point of separation for Israel in the Old Testament for sure from all the other nations of that time, especially of that time. And I believe even today it is still a great, great determiner of distinction and separation for the church today. We learned last week that the oneness of God is found in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Amen. With every bit of at least 3,000 plus verses in the Old Testament alone that uh, relate to the one God of the Israel. Amen. And that one God, the reality of that was, was posed in uh, Mark chapter number 12 for us as the first and the greatest commandment that there is of all the commandments that are listed was the reality of hero israel the lord our god is one lord we discussed last week that the reason that so many uh, had difficulties accepting even jesus christ the man jesus christ in the new testament was because they thought he was an imposter they thought that he was a man that was trying to be god or be another god and so that very idea and concept then went totally against their understanding and knowledge of the oneness of their God. But when they come to the realization that he was their God manifested in the flesh or what the fancy word is God incarnate, which incarnate just basically means in flesh. That he was God incarnate whenever they realized that Jesus was God incarnate or God manifested in the flesh as a man. Uh, all was well then for them. That helped them their understanding greatly. And so last of all, we affirm that the oneness of God is crucial to our salvation. Crucial to our salvation. We looked at scriptures how Jesus spoke that we must repent or perish. How he spoke that we must be born of the water and the spirit or we cannot enter or see the kingdom of God. But how he also said, except ye believe that I am, and that I am being the Old Testament revelation uh, that he gave to Moses of being the God of glory. He said, except ye believe that I am, ye shall die in your sins. So that's the recap of last week. Whenever we talk about God tonight, and I'm going to probably here go back and forth. I got this board where it will swivel. I did a little work ahead of time and made me, myself a grid. But whenever we speak about God, and if hopefully with the help of the Holy Ghost, we'll fill this whole grid up. Whenever we speak about God in the Bible, the God of the Bible, we speak of that God uh, in, in three different forms of operation, functions, or relationships. It's the words that trip everybody up because they have this Nicene creed that they are viewing God through. 
We talk about God in three different relationships, forms, or functions. We talk about him as father. We talk about him as son. And we talk about him, and I'm just going to use this term. I'm, I'm not nervous about using Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, Ghost and Spirit, both in, in the, the New Testament, the Greek, exact same word. It makes no difference to me. Amen. We talk about him in three different operations, uh, relationships, or functions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, it's oftentimes been said for years. Uh, God is the Father in creation. He created all things. There was not anything that was made that he didn't have his, quote-unquote, his hand in. Amen. He made all things, Revelation says, after the counsel of his own will, and he did it for his own pleasure, that God. And as a father then, he is the father in creation. He is the creator. He's, he's the fountain source from which all things are derived. He is the father of all things. Then God, as the relationship of son, he is the redeemer. He is the redeemer. As the son, as that relationship, he is the redeemer. And the reason why I specify that, because if you'll remember from last week, the son is basically this, God, who the Bible says in John 4, 24, who is spirit, God is a spirit. God plus flesh equals Jesus Christ. All right? And so as the son, he was in that relationship, he was the redeemer. Because Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But a spirit, Jesus himself said in Luke, hath not flesh and bones. He said, whenever he came to the disciples, as ye see me have, spirit don't. And so if it took blood in order to redeem sin, then it was going to take flesh or body in order for there to be blood. And so we know God as son in that relationship Amen, as the Redeemer, because it took the body that that God indwelt in order for there to be redemption for you and I and redemption for mankind. When we talk about his relationship or function as the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the Holy Spirit in regeneration or what we might even say the Holy, the Holy Spirit in resurrection. In resurrection, amen, Jesus went away. He said, but if I go away, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come unto you. Amen. The comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. He said, the Father will send in my name. And so when we talk about God as the Holy Spirit, we talk about him as the, the, the in a relationship of regeneration or resurrection. And really, and, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I said God is spirit, John 4, 24. Uh, in the Greek, it's not God is a spirit, but it's basically this, God is spirit. It's not making God one of many spirits. God is a spirit, like a one of many, but he is spirit. And therefore, as a result of that, since God is spirit, God is invisible. God is invisible. Unless he chooses to manifest himself in some way or in some fashion, he is invisible. Again, Luke 24, 39 tells us that Jesus said that a spirit hath not flesh and bones. And I'm telling you, I got a lot of scripture, but Zach McGee knows it. I probably got 19 or 20 that I'll share with you and probably 20 others that are just reference points. Okay. Amen. The Bible says in Colossians 1, this is one that we'll share. Colossians 1 and verse 15, it says who? To know who the who refers to. You can go back to verse 13. It refers to the dear son. Who is the image? That dear son. That man. 
Christ Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. Because God is a spirit. He's invisible. No man has seen God at any time, the scripture says. No one has ever seen God at any time. Amen. But whenever God invested himself and indwelt the flesh, the man, Christ Jesus, that invisible God had an image now to go with the invisibility. The invisible God was made visible through Jesus Christ. So who is the image of the invisible God? The first of every creature. And so in each relationship, in each relationship, whether it be the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, I'm not speaking of these as persons. I want to make that plain tonight. I'm not talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. For one thing, God the Son, there is no such thing. You will never find the terminology from Genesis to, to Revelation of the terminology God the Son. It's not in your Bible. It's the Son of God, not God the Son. You will never find God the Son. You will never find the eternal Son in the Word of God. The Son was not eternal. The Son had a beginning and the Son has an ending. Amen. And we'll talk about that all in weeks to come. And i got to be careful because it's really easy to go on dog trails. Amen here. But when we talk about the Father function or the Son function, the Holy Spirit function, the Spirit is involved in all of them. Because God was the Father and He is, of course, then the Bible tells us He's Spirit. And so when we get to the Son, that's God as Spirit that has flesh about Him. In flesh. When you talk about the Holy Spirit... Hey, man, that is, once again, God. Some people say, well, that's the Spirit of Christ. Well, what was the Spirit of Christ? Huh? New Testament says, yeah, uh, you know, talk about you having the Holy Ghost. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, you don't have the flesh of Christ in you. No, you have the Spirit of Christ that's in you. And the Spirit of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, to wit that God was in Christ, the Spirit of Christ is God. And so the Holy Ghost that you receive is the same spirit that Jesus had in him. Amen. Amen. So there's only one spirit. The Bible is emphatic about that. There is one spirit. And the reason why there's one spirit is because there's one God. Mm-hmm. Amen. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body here's this oneness thing going on whether we be jews or gentiles whether we be bond or free and have been all made to drink into one spirit ephesians 4 4 says there is one body here we are again and one spirit even as you're called in one hope of your calling there's one spirit because there's one god the verses that i said to you just a little while ago in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God as Father, God as Father being the creator of all things, amen, as Spirit, He moved upon the face of the waters. 
He moved, the Spirit of God moved and came upon Gideon in times past, the Bible says in uh, the book of Joshua, Judges, whichever it is, Judges, I think it is. The Spirit of God came upon Samson at sundry times, and he did great exploits for the Lord. The Bible speaks of the Spirit of God coming upon Saul and coming upon David, and that Spirit of God moved upon the, 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 the bones that were in the valley that were very dry in Ezekiel 37. That Spirit... In the Old Testament, amen, that we call Father because he's the creator of all things in that relationship, he was moving and functioning in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament scriptures. But that same, that same spirit that moved upon the waters in Genesis overshadowed Mary. That same spirit. That same spirit overshadowed Mary in Luke 135. And she conceived in her womb a child that was conceived of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Ghost. But it's that same spirit that moved upon the waters in Genesis. Amen. And then that child Jesus Christ that would be born of that woman Mary was embodied by the same spirit that had moved upon the waters in the same spirit that had overshadowed his mother was in him. Someone say amen. It was. And so Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you in John 14 and verse 18. And so that means this, folks, that when they or we, matters not, whenever we receive the Holy Ghost, whenever we receive the Holy Spirit, we got the same spirit that was embodied in Jesus. The same spirit that moved upon the face of the waters in the beginning of time. The same spirit that moved upon Saul, David, Gideon. The same spirit that embodied Jesus Christ. The same spirit that overshadowed Mary. That same spirit we got whenever we were filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Someone say, Amen. Whenever the Bible, and I said this, whenever the Bible speaks of the spirit of Jesus Christ, again, it's talking about the spirit that indwelt him, which was, as we know, God. Now, let's move on just a little bit. And I might have to go this back and forth in order to have room of what all that needs to be written. I'm going to feel like the end of John tonight. If everything was written, it could be written of him. The volumes would not contain it, and the, the mountains would not be able to hold it. <clears throat> Genesis 1. And verse number one, if you can put it up there for me. In the beginning, God. Everybody say God. In the beginning, God. God there is Elohim. Elohim. And Brother Mason, if you feel like you have something you can add to anything I'm saying, because you've been in Hebrew now for a long time, just pull my shirt tail. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. This is the first time, of course, this is the first verse here in the Bible. This is the first time that Elohim is used in the scripture. First time it's used in the Bible. Notably, and this is just for my learning and understanding. Notably, any, that any, any masculine noun that ends in I am is usually then in the plural form. In the plural form. All right, I know. We're going to delve in here just a little bit. I'm not going to hurt you too bad. So when we talk about that, then we're saying that Elohim here in the Hebrew, I'm just going to call it a noun. There's masculine and feminine nouns, but I'm not going to get into all that. But this is a noun plural or a plural 
noun in the Hebrew. And so what many want to jump to then is this, Brother Fred. Well, if the word for God in Hebrew is Elohim, a plural noun, then we must be dealing with a plurality of gods. We must be dealing with many gods here. But my answer to that is absolutely not. Because whenever you are referring here in the Hebrew to God, and it is Elohim, Elohim usually, and I'll tell you why in here in just a moment, Elohim usually is understood to be grammatically singular, particularly whenever it's referencing the God of the Hebrews. Because, are you listening? Because this being plural or singular, that noun is really based upon the singularity or plurality of the verb in Hebrew. All right? The, the verb in the same verse, Genesis 1 and 1, is created. That's created. All right? Uh, I believe the Hebrew is something like this. Or, you know, pronunciation. This verb, guess what? Is singular. This is not, this is not, this is not Paul McGee's laws. This is not some, some, some Bible character that's a oneness man that's trying to push an agenda laws. This is Hebrew language law. This is Hebrew language law. So what that tells me then is this. If the verb is singular, that means the noun is singular. You know what that means? It means we're not talking about gods. We're talking about one God. One. Everybody say one. One God. Because the verb dictates, determines, governs, if you will, whether or not that noun is plural or singular as it is to be understood. So we should understand then Elohim here to be in singular form. Now, with that being said, let's skip down to verse 26 of Genesis 1. Here we go again. And God, it's Elohim again, Elohim said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God, Elohim again, created man in his own image. In the image of God created he, him. Male and female created he, them. Let's just take just a few little flybys all right here this evening God said in verse 26 God said in verse 26 God did in verse 27 all right God said in verse 26 he did in verse 27 in verse 26 we have plural pronouns such as us and our us and our but in verse 27, we have singular pronouns such as his and he and him, right? Does everybody follow me? Been a while since you've been in English class. Welcome. Amen. This is all right. This ain't going to hurt anybody. What I'm doing tonight, I am equipping you. I'm equipping you. So if we go a little further and compare Scripture with Scripture, because as some would like to say, the verse 26 then relates that God is a plurality of gods or a plurality of persons, if you will. Uh, he was speaking to, you know, God the Son and God the Holy Ghost in order to come about and make a man. 
Let's compare some other scriptures that center around the context of creation. For instance, Isaiah, because scripture interprets scripture. All right? That's where people take one scripture and try to make a doctrine off of it. You better just think again. The Bible says out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, that goes the same even for scripture. Let every word be established. The Bible says in Isaiah 44 and verse 24, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, He, look what he says, that formed thee. So we're in the context of, of the forming of someone. He says here in a womb. But he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that, but this is, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by my self. So he's talking about the context of creation. But he says, I do this alone. I do this by myself. He says, I am the Lord that maketh all things. It's interesting that here in, 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 in Isaiah 44, 24, the verb maketh there is in the singular. It's, in, it's a singular verb. And that even helps shed some light on the make in Genesis 1, 26. All right. And shed some light on Genesis 1, 26. Same word, speaking of creation in both accounts. All right. So if, if he says I did it alone and I did it by myself in Isaiah... That sheds some light then on even our Genesis 1.26 factor. If that's not good enough, we can go to Genesis 6 and 7. The Bible says, and the Lord said, this is just, just a little bit deeper, you know, past chapter number 1, uh, right here before uh, the destruction, if you will, of the world with the flood. The Bible says, and the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. I will destroy man whom I have created. Created. Now, wouldn't it have been horrible for there to have been three to create man and one be able to decide to destroy him? He, <laughs> the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creepy thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Let's go a little bit further. Let's go a little bit further. Talking then about a little bit more of this Elohim, this Elohim. If, if it's talking about many gods or a plurality of gods, a plurality of persons at least, the word Elohim is used in conjunction with a false god by the name of Baal in Genesis 6.31. It's also used in conjunction with a false god by the name of Beelzebub in 2 Kings 1.2. They were both referred to as Elohim, but in each of those accounts, it didn't denote Baal as being a trinity or Beelzebub being the Trinity. Just thinking. No plurality of persons, just plurality of attributes. Now, again, God said in verse 26, God did in verse 27. Where God did, again, Elohim is the plural masculine noun. Oftentimes, even the reason why it's given this plurality, it's to give respect to God, amen, it's spoken in the plural almost as a plural of majesty, has all these honorifics, you know, all, all the grand many facets, you know, of our God, amen, whenever it's used for our God, it's just respectful, a plurality of attributes, we'll lean on that a little bit more here in just a bit, if you go back to Deuteronomy 6 and 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one 
Lord. What is the word there for one, Brother Mason? Echad. You got to sound like, and you could do this real easy right now with allergy season. You can sound, you can get echad, you know, going. Echad. <laughs> it's the word for one. It's Hebrew for number one. It also means alone. It means unique. It carries the meaning of this, and this is one you need to kind of script in your mind. It carries the meaning of this, one with many components or attributes. Let me, let, let me write that down. One with many components or attributes. That's the one where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's one with many components or attributes. Another Hebrew word that is translated one in our Bibles is Yahid. I don't know if I got that one right. Yahid. It means one or only. It's used whenever God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 22 and 2 and told him, Take thy son, thy only son, Isaac. Yahid. However, another place that this word for one in Deuteronomy 6 and 4 is used is in Numbers 13 and verse 23. It's used whenever they are mentioning the one cluster of grapes that was brought from Canaan. And this is what the Bible says, Numbers 13 and verse 23. And they came unto the brook of Eskol and cut down from thence a branch with one. Echad. Cluster of grapes. Y'all laughing at me. Um, and they bear it between two upon a staff and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. It was one cluster but as denoted here in the Hebrew, it was one cluster, but it had many attributes. If you have one cluster of grapes and you have, let's say, let's say you have 25 grapes on it. Those 25, each individual grape is going to just be a little bit different. You know how the, the grape juice and all that gets its flavor? It's not because there's one grape, because of the multiplicity of the attributes of the grape that's on the cluster. It's one cluster, but it has various attributes. All right. And so whenever Echad is used to describe God, it describes him as being one then with many attributes. Well, what attributes are you talking about? Well, there are several things in the Old Testament you could look at. Some of them we, we talk of any time. Sometimes we sing songs about it. He's my Jehovah Jireh. What's that? Your provider? Huh? We have other one, other Jehovah's where he's the Lord of hosts, where he's the Healer, huh? Right? So when you start talking about the other attributes of God, when you want to think about them, well, he's creator, he's healer, he's provider, he's savior, he's our peace, he's our righteousness. We're talking about one God, but he has all these attributes, amen, ascribed to him. And the Bible says, when we get New Testament scripture, Paul in Colossians 2 and 9 and 10 that we love. He said, for in him, speaking of Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness. The word fullness there in the Greek is totality. It's kind of like a, a double whammo. All, all the totality of the Godhead bodily. What are you saying? All the attributes. All the various attributes of that one God was indwelling that man, Christ 
Jesus. Jesus was all the varied attributes of God in human flesh. And the Bible says, ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now consider, now consider here. Romans 1 and verse number 20. Romans 1 and verse number 20. do at the same time the bible says for the invisible things romans 120 for the invisible and let's read it slowly and i have a good feeling i'm not going to get through this lesson i have prepared for the invisible things of him you want to know the him that is speaking about look at the verses earlier it's speaking about god for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. This is my paraphrase of the verse. This verse tells me that at the moment of creation, there were invisible things of God, because he's a spirit, that were clearly seen and understood by the things that he created, by the things that he made. And one of the things that he made was man. It's saying there were some, in the invisible things of God were seen, understood by the things that were made, even his power and his Godhead. What was unseen and invisible was known by what he Made, which among the things that were made was man. Someone say man. God's power, anybody's power to a certain degree is invisible until they act in some way or demonstrate in some fashion the power that they got. You know, put your strength to the test. Not only that, his Godhead was revealed. And they were seen, and I say this plainly, they were seen and they were understood by the making of man that God made in that garden. The Bible says in Hebrews 1 and 3, who, again, you want to know who that is? Look further up, verse number 2. It's speaking of the Son, or Christ Jesus. Who, being the brightness of his glory. You want to know who the his is? Look at verse number one of that exact chapter. It's speaking of God. So the Son, being the brightness of God's glory, Jesus Christ, being the brightness of God's glory, and the express image, the Son is the express image of His God's person. And upholding all things by the power of Word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I'm not going to go through the right hand. I did a whole lesson on it. You can check the podcast. I've taught it in this church on a Wednesday night. I don't have time to chase every rabbit, although I'd love to. Bible says here the, that Christ Jesus, or the Son, the man, was the express image of God's person. Jesus was... That phrase, the express image, in the Greek is, he was the figure stamped 
an exact copy. The imprinted, the one imprinted by the divine reality by God's essence. Jesus was the exact copy of God's essence. Essence isn't something necessarily you see. It's some of those invisible things. But Jesus was the exact copy of the invisible things of God. And the Bible says of his, of God's person. Person in the Greek in this verse means this. A setting under, a support, a basis, a foundation to place oneself under or concealment. It means hidden, unseen essence. Therefore, what Hebrews 1.3 is saying, Jesus Christ was the exact copy, if you will, of the hidden, unseen essence of God. Said simply, he made the invisible God seen and understood by mankind. Someone say amen. John 1.18 tells us, no man have seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom, which is a place of honor, of the Father, he hath declared him. The word declared in the Greek is he hath revealed him. Jesus Christ hath revealed the God that no one has seen because he put flesh on him. Someone say amen. I'm a whole lot excited about this. You don't even know how everything's jumping around in my body right now. But here's what I want to bring to the fact. He said at creation, the invisible things of God were made seen and understood by things which God created. And so there is an impression of God's essence. Are you listening to me? There's an impression of God's essence and God's nature upon every man. Are you with me? Upon every man. I like the way uh, Joe Urshan had said at one time. He said, we were created to reflect. You and I, we were created to reflect what God would look like when he would walk on the earth as the man, Christ Jesus. There is an impression of God's essence upon each and every one of us. The Bible, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. When we look at man, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your host spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's speaking of man. Man is made of three components. Man, in his relationship to father, would be man's soul. Because in Genesis, the Bible says that God breathed into man and man became a living So God as father of creation Here's the relationship. God as father of creation breathed into man and man became a living soul. Right? Someone say amen. <laughs> Not only that, as son, man, we have body. Man is body. As Holy Spirit, man has a human spirit. But he's one man. What was clearly seen and understood in creation about the invisible was made known in man. That he is a man of soul, body, and spirit, just like his creator. 
just like his creator of the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, man. So God's essence is upon every, every man. But not only that, God's essence, this oneness of God, it doesn't just enter into man, it enters into his church. It enters his church. It enters his plan of salvation. Amen. It enters his church. How? Because as the church, as the church, the church relates to the father relationship of God as being the children of God. The Bible calls us that. Children of God. We relate to the father relationship row as children of God. The church relates to the son relationship function of God as being, everybody with me? I don't want to move too quick. As being the bride of Christ. The Bible calls us that. These are not terms I'm making up. These are biblical terms. In your Bible, in the New Testament, the church relates to that relationship of God being son as the bride of Christ. He's coming back for a church that have made herself ready without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We are the bride of Christ. But the church relates to the Holy Spirit row or Holy Spirit function and operation of God by being the body of Christ. Hmm? Oh, yeah. Because that spirit invests itself in the body whom we are of Christ. Christ being the head, the scripture says. So here's the church relating to each row. As children of God, bride of Christ, and body of Christ. But it's all still one church. Amen. One church. But, so, see, so, so you see in this one, see, this oneness thing is not just something that's dreamed up over in left field. It infiltrates every aspect of Christian life, human life for that matter. Not only that, this oneness infiltrates into the plan of salvation. Anybody got any ideas? plan of salvation that we teach Acts 2 verse 37 38 39 now I will tell you this that whenever we talk about repentance and baptism and the infilling of the Holy Ghost I'm just going to put HG there okay (laughs) the infilling of the Holy Ghost I will tell you this that our relationship at repentance baptism and Holy Ghost There can be some crossing over here. All right? Because I understand repentance, that that 180-degree turn, that turning away from sin and turning to God, turning to the God that I was at odds with because of my sin, the God that was upset as father and angry with me because of my sin, I'm turning back toward him. I'm trying to make through repentance peace with my father. All right. But then we go to baptism and I relate to him as son because I take upon the name of the son. Someone say amen. I take upon the name of the son in my baptism. The reason why I say there's some crossover because your repentance isn't complete until you're baptized correctly. Because Peter said, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. Repent and be baptized. So, so my repentance isn't complete until my baptism is done appropriately. And so that's the reason why I say there's a little bit of crossover between our relationship with repentance and baptism. I'm still relating to God over here in my baptism, amen, uh, although I'm relating to the Son as well because the reason being is my repentance isn't complete until my baptism is replete. Complete, But I do relate to the son in baptism because I take his name in baptism. It's done in the name of Jesus Christ. So it, relate, it causes me to relate then to the son relationship of God. And what else? Huh? For my sins to be remitted, which means removed, goes back to what I talked about earlier. That couldn't happen without blood and you don't get blood without a body. So baptism relates to the son aspect. Because you understand, don't you, and we'll talk about this later. Man, this is really hard. You understand, don't you, that the son of God was really the flesh of that man. Hmm? The son of God is the flesh of that man. That was, the flesh was born of a woman. That thing which was conceived in her was flesh. That's the son of God. That's how your son of God, that people call the eternal son, has a definite beginning and definite ending. The flesh. God, help me. The Bible calls him the begotten son. Anything that's begotten has a beginning and an origin. So it can't be eternal. If it's begotten, it can't be eternal. And anything eternal hasn't been begotten. Well, I'm feeling the Holy Ghost. When you start talking about Jesus, my God, I'm about ready to explode. So we needed a body at baptism in order to have blood in order to complete the remission or the removal of sins, all right? So we relate to God as son in our baptism. We relate to him as the Holy Spirit in that relationship when we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now the reason why I say there's a cross over here is because the Holy Ghost, according to John 7, is it 37, 38, 39? The Holy Ghost was not given until Jesus was glorified. Wasn't given to the rest of humanity until Jesus was glorified. So there's a crossover. Yeah, I relate to him by the Holy Spirit, but even at the Holy Ghost level, I'm relating to the Son because it wouldn't be able to be given to mankind until he was glorified. That's his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Someone say amen. Everybody doing okay? Is anybody understanding the lick of what I'm saying? And so when we receive the Spirit, we receive the Spirit. That was given because Jesus Christ had already been glorified. I might get there. I don't know. It's only 42. I've only been teaching for 42 minutes. God's oneness is so pervasive. Everybody here? That our government comes from God. All the way back to Mount Sinai. We live in a society, I know, where they're trying to keep God at bay from government and politics. But our government, our, particularly the United States government, has, has derived its functions, its operations, and its relationships from God. Whenever we talk about government, <laughs> whenever we talk about government, who was the lawgiver? It's oftentimes spoken of. 
Moses, right? Of course, he was given it by who? God. When we talk about government, and we talk about in relationship to the Father, we're talking about the law. Mm-hmm. Moses often called the lawgiver, but it was given to him by God as the father of the nation of Israel. All right? The only time that you see God spoken as father in the Old Testament is in his relationship to creation or his relationship to Israel or in verses of prophecy speaking of him being the father in the future. Because a lot of people try to say, well, they speak of God, they speak of father in the Old Testament, and so if he's a father, then he must have some son and tried to talk about then the son exists all the way back then. The only time the son existed back then was in the thought and the will of God, not in the person of Jesus Christ. The only time father, that title was used for God is when he was speaking about him being the father of creation or the father of the nation of Israel or any other scripture that deals with prophecy speaking of him being the father in the future when Jesus would be born. I'm, I know, I'm going down trails, but i got to. All right? And so here he is. So we have those first five books of the Bible, right? The law. Then we have Joshua, conquest of the land. They're inheriting the land of promise. What happens then after Joshua? Judges. Our relationship to God as son. We'll get there, folks. Judges. Judges. Samuel was the last judge in the earth, right? You have, you have first, second Samuel, and then what do you have? Kings. Our relationship to God is spirit, kings. Now, this looks like pretty good government up here. Let's break it down for our understanding tonight. Anybody know what the legislative? Huh? We go back to Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> Judicial. Executive. Let's break it down a little bit more. Legislative make what? Judicial does what? Interpret law. Executive does what? Enforce. Oh, I'm feeling the Holy Ghost. Enforce law. <laughs> you know what's amazing about this? When we start to understand this, throw up there, if you will, Isaiah 33 and verse 22 for me, real quick. Isaiah 33, verse 22. You got so many you got to look through, don't you? For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Someone say amen. Everybody with me? As our father, God gave us the law. He did. Gave it to Moses, gave it to the whole nation of Israel. As our father, God gave us the law. He made the law. As the relationship or function of the son, God judged and interpreted the law. Watch it now. How many times do you see in the New Testament scripture that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these different groups came to Jesus Christ with questions about the law? They want him to weigh in on the matter. Are you listening to me? The lady caught in the very act of adultery. John chapter number 8. They come and say, Moses in the law says that we should stone her. But what do you think? They want him to be an interpreter. They 
They want him to be the interpreter of the law. The law says, Lord, love thy neighbor. And the story of the Good Samaritan unfolds then in Luke chapter number 10. And they pose the question, who is my neighbor? They want to know how far they should go. What are they wanting him to do? Who's my neighbor? Judge the law. Interpret it for me. Uh huh. The Sadducees come to the Lord and say, Lord, <laughs> there is a woman. She had a husband. He died. And the law of Moses says that if that happens, that the next of kin should go unto her and raise seed in her name. But that one died, and the next one died, and the next one died. She had all seven of them. And they never gave any, gave any seed to her in the resurrection, which the Sadducees didn't even believe in. In the resurrection, whose, which husband she's going to belong to? He said, You don't understand. He said, in the resurrection in heaven, they don't marry or give in marriage. They're as the angels. Huh? That's what the Bible says in Luke 20, verses 27 through 36. What are they asking the Lord in that moment? They're wanting him to judge, interpret what the law says. And so government with God as son, the relationship of son, he is our interpreter of the law. And can I say this? As we have already seen, Jesus... Jesus being born mm, woo, was an interpretation. Was an interpretation itself because him coming among us declared and revealed the invisible God to us. He interpreted the very essence of God that God is one Lord. Now, government as in relationship to God as spirit, again, not as a person, but as a function, operation, a relationship, as God as Holy Spirit, he is enforcing the law. Let's look at just a few verses of Scripture. And I, I am. I'm really close to closing. No one get nervous. The Bible says in John 14, verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And look at this. And bring all things to your remembrance, whatever I said unto you. What happens with, let's just get, just get practical. What happens with your Holy Ghost? Does it not call you to order whenever you are stepping out of order? What's it trying to do? Call things to remembrance for the purpose of what? Enforcing. Enforcing what is pleasing to God. Boom. John 16 and verse 13. How be it when he, John 16, 13. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, which is the Holy Ghost, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For you not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will shew you things to him. He will guide you into all. No truth. He's trying to enforce you in a way. First John 2, verse 27. But the anointing, which is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, all right, which ye have received of him. And if you're wanting a copy of that, I have it right here. I thought ahead, but I didn't want to give it to you too soon because I didn't want your heads down and not listening when I was talking. They tell me, they always say that if you have handouts, you do it at the end, not at the beginning, or people's going to read the material and not listen to the words you say. At least that's what Brother Mooney always said. Unless you can really trust him. So we got trust issues. But the anointing, which is the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, which ye have received of him, abideth in you. And ye need not any man teach you, 
But as the same anointing teaches you of all things is truth and is no lie. Why? Because he's enforcing, he's enforcing. Even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Paul even said in Acts chapter 16 and verse number uh, 6 through 7, Paul said that he was forbidden by the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia at a particular time. He was forbidden to. What was the Spirit doing? Enforcing something. It was enforcing. Amen. He says then further, he says, we were going to go to Bithynia. He said, but the Spirit suffered us not. What's it doing? It's enforcing something. It's enforcing the law of the Spirit. Therefore, tonight, I tell you, God's oneness brings oneness into many, many, many aspects of our lives and of our experiences and of our makeup, so to speak. God is one. Relationship, Father and creation, Son and redemption, Holy Spirit and resurrection and regeneration. And man relates to those relationships. The church relates to those relationships. The plan of salvation relates in many facets to those relationships. And government has even found its origin in places of those relationships. Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, I'm not telling you three persons that are co-equal, co-eternal, co-substantial, that can love one another. No, 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 no. I'm talking about functions, operations, relationships. One God, one Spirit through it all. Middle time had flesh, other time did not. One God. If you'll stand with me here this evening. Phew. Amen. I'm going to ask God to help us here this week. Amen. That He would continue to open our mind and our revelation. Amen. And the word of the Lord of no private interpretation the scripture says father i come to you right now lord we need you lord in this place and we need you lord in our homes and our families i pray oh god it's your revealed word and i pray oh god let that revealed word take root within our hearts and within our minds i pray oh god today that you're able lord to equip us father god in this day in this hour i pray god with your word it was just you and your word in the beginning god and i lord feel lord in fear in many respects we are almost going back to a place of just you and your word but god it's enough and it is sufficient and i stand upon it and declare it lord god as you have asked us to declare it lord in your word i pray oh lord be of your people god be within the remainder of this week keep your hand of safety and protection upon them god and bring us back the appointed time lord on sunday and will not fail and thank you for it in the name of jesus christ that i pray amen and amen the church say amen amen thank you for listening if you would like more information about our services and activities you can find us on facebook instagram and twitter with the username facmc again that's facmc thank you and have a blessed day